There's a book called The Miracle on the River Kwai that was turned into a movie called To End All Wars. And the movie is about these prisoners of war during World War II that were captured by the Japanese and their life in a Japanese prison camp. The most gripping scene of the whole story is this one scene where these men who are prisoners of war are forced to work and they do this hard labor and at the end of it they return all their equipment. They put their shovels in the shed. Well, it turns out that there was a guard there, he counted, and one shovel was missing. And so then he came out and screamed at these men, these prisoners of war, that whoever stole the shovel should return it immediately. There was no answer. Everyone just stood in line, unfazed. And then the guards began to be more riled up, and they demanded that they should return. Whoever had the audacity to steal this should immediately return. If not, they would all pay. Again, no answer. Then the prison guards came out and they all pointed their rifles at all the men and said that if this was not returned right away, they would all be gunned down. And at that moment, one man stepped out of the line, stood forward and came and took responsibility for stealing the shovel. In their rage, they took the back ends of their rifles and they clubbed this man to death. In the very next scene, the guard goes back to count and see that there was a miscount. No one had stolen a shovel. And, and that's when suddenly everyone becomes aware that this man who was innocent, who had done nothing wrong, took the blame in order for them to be spared. He died for them. Now, preachers like me love stories like that and immediately connected because it's so helpful to tell you something that's at the very heart of the Christian faith. Preachers grab onto that story because we need to tell you, we need to tell ourselves that at the very heart of the Christian faith is this good news that an innocent man died for us. If there was a theologian standing up here, he would tell you what we are speaking of is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's what he'd say. But in simpler language, what he'd basically be telling you is at the heart of the Christian message is this simple good news. That Jesus Christ didn't ultimately come to the earth to be our teacher. He didn't ultimately come just to be our example or our inspiration. Jesus didn't come to show us a better way or lead us down a better path or inspire you to live a better life. Jesus ultimately came to be your substitute. To be taking your place. To exchange himself for you. Jesus for us. You for Jesus. This is the very heart of the Christian faith. And there's all kinds of verses you could hear that tell you that simple word that Jesus came for us, died for us, did what he did in our place and for us as our substitute in exchange for us. You heard one of these verses, in fact, during our time of confession. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Hear it once more. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is how he gives you a snapshot. If he could describe the gospel, the good news of the Christian message, here it is. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The big idea that Paul wants to especially capture in that is, listen, you might be able to imagine that a comrade would die for his comrades. 
And if we told more stories, you'd even be able to imagine of a spouse dying for a spouse, a father for a child, a sibling for their sibling, a friend for a friend. But God does this. He dies for the ungodly, for the undeserving. He exchanges himself for his enemies. Christ died for us. Now, as the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so what Paul in Romans will say propositionally, Mark in our passage will say visually. Mark will say to us, I could tell you this in a lot of sentences, but let me tell you a story so that you can visually see Jesus being our substitute. So that you can visually see Jesus taking our place. That's what we're looking at today. We're in Mark chapter 15, and you're going to see Mark tell us You're going to see an exchange happen. You're going to see a trade. In fact, you're going to see a king and a criminal. And in fact, by the end of the story, you'll see not just a king and a criminal, but a king for a criminal. That's Mark 15. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat back in front of you. This is page 852. While you turn there, let me just pause for one moment and ask God for his help. And then we'll read this section and consider it together. God, we ask you now that you would help, and not just us, we think even today of all the people who are worshiping you throughout our city, throughout our country, to the ends of the earth, wherever people are gathering, and wherever someone is standing with a Bible open, we pray that you would grant success to the preaching of your word, that through it, eyes would be open to see, ears would be open to hear, hearts would be softened to feel, believe, and minds would understand. And that today, even as we pray to the ends of the earth for us, as we gather here, help us to see Christ and to be drawn afresh to him and what he has done for us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark sets the scene for us in Mark 15, verse 1, and he does so by picking up exactly where we left off. If you remember, by this point, Jesus has prayed, Judas has betrayed, the disciples have abandoned The chief priests have condemned, the guards have spit, and at last we saw Peter has denied and the rooster has crowed. The rooster's crow means that it's early Friday morning, in the waking hours of what we would call Good Friday, and as soon as it turns into Good Friday, Mark 15.1 starts this way, and as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So what Mark is telling us is that bogus midnight trial that Pastor Sibby preached to us about, that bogus midnight trial where they had, if you remember, decided the verdict guilty and the sentence death before they even had a charge, That midnight trial is now over, and they have all decided Jesus must die. But here's the thing. They are a people under a foreign power. So the Jewish council, no matter how vehemently they want to put this man to death, they're under Rome and Roman occupation, and they don't have anymore the power to do the death penalty. And so they'll need Rome's help to carry out the execution. And so if this thing is going to be done, it's not enough that they should think Jesus should die. They need to convince Rome that Jesus should die. 
And so Mark tells us, as soon as morning breaks, they hurry over to the Roman governor's house and they present their case before a man named Pilate as to why Jesus should die. Now Mark, if you remember, he's got 16 chapters, whereas the other writers have 26 and 24 and 28 and so on. So he says everything much more succinctly. He doesn't tell us all that they must have said to Pilate. And yet, with Pilate's first question, we get the gist of what they must have told him. Because Pilate asked, verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? The emphasis there would have even been on that word you. Are you the king of the Jews? So the thought here, and what you should capture about this, is that when the religious leaders had conducted their mockery of a trial, their kangaroo court, their charge, what was their charge against Jesus? Do you remember? Their charge was blasphemy. Uh, Pastor Sibby told us blasphemy was what made the chief priest tear his pajamas that day, right? That he couldn't imagine that this peasant preacher from Nazareth was claiming to be equal to the divine one, the son of man who would come in clouds with great power. They screamed out blasphemy. They tore their clothes and they pronounced him guilty of death. But here's the thing. While that would offend them, the blasphemy charge would hold no water with the Romans, It's not like Pilate would hear that this guy had bad theology and suddenly be offended. So if they're going to get this charge to stick, they're going to have to change it some. They know that they can't come to Pilate with that. In fact, historians would tell us that this man Pilate had very little respect for the Jewish people and even less so for their religion. So it's not like they're going to be able to come before Pilate and say, Listen, Pilate, this man claimed to be the Messiah. You know, the Christ, you you know, the anointed one, they would have gotten a blank stare. If they said, no, 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 you you don't understand. He said that he is our David. No, 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 he's the son of the blessed one. Or how about this, Pilate, in Daniel 7, there's this vision of clouds and the son of man comes. Pilate wouldn't have been phased by any of that. And so they know this blasphemy charge needs to be translated into political language if they're going to get Rome's attention. And so now in Matthew 15, you get a title for Jesus that you have not yet seen once in the entire account. For 15 chapters, we've never seen this title except now because now they come before Pilate and they say, Pilate, this man has claimed to be the king of the Jews. And that gets Pilate's attention. Whereas blasphemy won't work Treason will. And so Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Mark tells us Jesus answered him, you have said so. You think about that, what kind of answer is that? Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. What kind of answer is that? It's not really a yes, and it's not really a no. right? It's not really a yes because... He's not a king the way that at least Pilate means it. It's sort of like if someone in your life who doesn't know about Christianity comes and asks, are you one of those religious people? You sort of want to go, well, it depends what you mean by religious. Are you one of those born-again Christians? Well, you have said so, right? Because it's not really yes the way that you mean it, and it's not no for sure. And so here, are you the king of the Jews? Well, not the way that you mean it. But on the other hand, 
Absolutely, yes, because Jesus is not only the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Romans. He's the king of the whole world. This is God in the flesh. And so he's not going to affirm Pilate's misconception nor deny the truth. And frankly, at this point, here's the thing. Jesus beyond this has nothing more to say. In fact, you know that in Mark's account, after this, Jesus will say nothing more until the cross itself. This is the last thing he will say. As if to say, by this point, he has said all there is to say and there's nothing left to say. And the odd thing is, listen, a man fighting for his life at this point, at this moment, would have lots to say. But isn't that the thing? Jesus is not fighting for his life. He's fighting for yours. And because he's fighting for your life, he won't say a word to save his own. Because he's committed in that hour to save you, he will not save himself. And so he has nothing to say. Mark wants you to know, but while Jesus has nothing to say, the religious leaders, however, have lots to say. Look at verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things. If you go over to Luke's version... Luke will fill you in on what those many things were. Luke will tell you, and then they said this about him, and then they said this about him, and they said this about him. But Mark, it's almost as if Mark's focus is, he doesn't want you to hear what they say as much as what he wants you to hear is Jesus' silence. Because he's out now, not fighting for his life but yours, he says nothing. So much so that Mark tells us, verse 4, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Verse 5, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And, and if you remember everything we've said in Mark till now, isn't that something? When Jesus opened his mouth in the synagogues, the people were amazed But what was coming out of his mouth. We had never heard anything like this before. But in Mark, when Jesus closes his mouth, people are still amazed by what he doesn't say. Whether he speaks or doesn't speak, Mark is telling you Jesus is amazing. He, he is unbelievable. And what a contrast he is from the religious leaders. While they are now running their mouth, Jesus has nothing to say from his mouth. And that catches Pilate's attention so that he is amazed. Who is this that he's facing death and still seems so steady? So composed, so fearless. And that's the question. The question that the entire gospel of Mark has been asking. Who is this Jesus? And for us in chapter 15, that's the question that dominates not just the book, but chapter 15. Is he in fact the king of the Jews? That title, king of Israel, king of the Jews, is at the center of this entire Roman trial. You'll see it five times in chapter 15. In verse 2, in verse 9, in verse 12, in verse 18, in verse 32, over and over again, that title, King of the Jews, King of the Jews, it's as if Mark wants you to not miss. That's what this is about. And Mark would even have us see, while that's a phrase, listen to this, while it's a phrase that is used condemningly by the religious leaders, while it is used suspiciously by Pilate, while it is used sarcastically and mockingly by the soldiers, we, the readers, are supposed to know it's actually true. Though it's said five times in this passage and no one believes it, without them knowing, they are confessing the truth of who he is. The irony of irony is he is, in fact, exactly that. He is the king 
of the Jews. That's who he is, the king of all things. But now, Mark wants you to see, watch what happens to the king. Because now the scene is going to shift. And if we go from six and following, you're going to now meet another character in the story. We've seen the king. Now in verse 6, you meet a criminal. Look at verse 6 through 8. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Now pause for a second. It, it becomes clear as you keep reading this, and if you read Matthew and Luke and their version of it, it becomes very clear that Pilate isn't himself convinced of Jesus' guilt. In fact, if it were up to Pilate, he'd like to wash his hands of the whole thing, and in fact, that's exactly what he'll do. He doesn't want to have to deal with this. He doesn't want to rule with this whole thing. And for Pilate, fortunately, he has a card left to play. It's almost like he's got something up his sleeve that can help him dodge this bullet and get out of having to rule on Jesus. It turns out that apparently, verse 6, there was this tradition during the Passover time that the governor, Pilate, would release for them one prisoner that the people wanted. So the people would come during Passover and petition the government for one prisoner, sort of like in our day, a presidential pardon. Right? The, the president can extend a pardon to a criminal and they get to go free. Well, that's what they did then. And if you think about it, it seems politically shrewd. Politically wise and expedient. It, it seems like it's not that big a deal to throw a bone to the people, to appease their desire, to give them one prisoner in exchange for keeping them in line, to squell and quelch, to quell and quelch any kind of opposition or rebellion or riot. One prisoner seems hardly too big a price to pay. And so Pilate figures, here's what I'll do. I'll give them Jesus. The only thing he hadn't calculated well is that there happens to be two options. One is Jesus, and the other is this man we come to find here. The other is a man called Barabbas. Now, what do we know about him? Let's start with his name. Barabbas. If you look at it again, you can hear sort of two words there. Bar-Abbas, or Abba. And that would have told us this phrase literally means son of Abba. Here is this man opposite Jesus, and he's the son of the father. I found out, which I thought was fascinating and interesting, in some of the accounts we even find his first name. Not only opposite Jesus is standing here is Barabbas, the son of the father, but that in Matthew's account, some of the early copies of the Bible told us that his first name, guess what his first name was? Jesus Barabbas. In fact, if you look, if you have an NIV version of the Bible, a New International Version of the Bible, in Matthew 27, in verse 16 and 17, it'll say, at that time, there was a well-known prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked, which one do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? Isn't that something? That the choice is between Jesus, son of the Father, or Jesus, the Son of the Father. And what else do we know about this Barabbas? Besides his name, Mark tells us he's in prison. Matthew's account would add he's not just a prisoner. He's a notorious prisoner is the way that Matthew describes him. Meaning this wasn't just a guy in for petty theft. 
This is a well-known criminal. This is an Al Capone. By the name itself, you would have known who that is. This is Barabbas, the notorious prisoner. Mark tells us also that he's a rebel, that he was part of the insurrection, meaning he was a freedom fighter for the Jewish people. He was going to bring about the kingdom of God, the deliverance of Israel, and the means he would use would be murder. That's who this man was. And when you see Jesus Barabbas, or the son of the father, and the son of the father, Jesus, standing there, you could not, at least in literature, have a greater foil, what they call, a greater contrast between the two. I I was reminded, you know, there's this famous picture of when Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X met for one time. Supposedly in their life, they met one time for one minute, and yet in that one minute, they captured a picture, and as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so people have referred to and looked at with great interest that one picture and thought all kinds of what a contrast the meeting of those two men were. I mean, you have two great African-American leaders with great followings who wanted the same exact thing, the deliverance of the African-American people, and yet the means they went about it could not be of greater contrast. One was the preacher of nonviolence, one by any means necessary, and to see the two of them put next to each other, juxtaposed one by the other, contrasted the two like you could never imagine. Mark 15, you have two Jesuses, two Barabbases, both announcing that they would bring about the kingdom of God. And the means of one would be to take life, and the means of the other would be to give his life. The means of one was a sword that was dripping with Roman blood, and the means of the other was captured in the garden, and when Peter pulled out his sword, he said, put that away. For those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and that is not how the kingdom of God is going to come. These two men standing by each other could not present for us in the story a greater foil, a greater contrast. So now the question is, which will it be? Jesus the king or Barabbas the criminal? Now Pilate hopes to sway the crowd. Look at verse 9. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Listen, Pilate knows something fishy is going on. We're not sure if he's moved by the injustice of the whole thing. History tells us he wouldn't have been that kind of a man. Or maybe it's just this, that it didn't take a genius to realize that the chief priests probably weren't against Jesus because they were so committed to Rome. It didn't take a genius for you to realize that there's probably not loyalty to the empire and to the emperor and to Rome that's at the heart of this, but rather this is personal for them somehow. And perhaps it was that you would imagine Pilate didn't take well to being manipulated and used by his subjects. And so for Pilate, the choice was easy. You either have a Jesus who is a king, a king with no army, with no followers, with no defense, with nothing even to say, or a notorious criminal who has killed Romans. For Pilate, that choice is easy, and his hope is to use this loophole to get out of the whole situation, and yet what begins as a loophole for Pilate will end up as a noose around his neck, and he can't get out of. Because verse 11 says, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd 
to have him release for them Barabbas instead. There's a good chance that the crowd that was there that morning had come for the express purpose of asking for Barabbas' release. There was this tradition after all. Not to mention that in some ways, isn't Barabbas the Messiah that they had been hoping Jesus would have been? The one who wasn't coming around telling you, you should pay your taxes to Rome, but the one who was actually going to do something about Rome. The one who was going to take out a Roman or two. This is what they had wanted all along. Maybe they were there that morning to release him to begin with. And not to mention that now they had the highest religious leader's support and endorsement for that candidate. And so he becomes the one that the crowd screams for. Isn't the irony here? The chief priests had brought about Jesus because he was such a threat to Rome. And yet they're stirring up the crowd to scream out for the man who had killed the Romans. Verse 12. Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Hear those words ringing in your ears. Crucify him. One writer said, if you take it in, it's the most chilling words in the entire gospel. I mean, at the surface level itself, can you just imagine a Jewish crowd screaming out to the pagan Romans for them to put about their worst punishment on a fellow Jew? How twisted would this have been that they would have been screaming to the Romans to crucify another Jewish man? But at a deeper level, at a deeper level, here is Israel's leaders and her people and their Messiah has come to them. The son of David has come to them. The anointed one, the Christ, the blessed one of God, the son of man from Daniel 7. And their cry to Rome is, would you do us a favor and kill him for us? Their God had come to them, and they asked the Romans, could you kill him for us? Crucify him. And the passage ends in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. By the time we get to the end of verse 15, then, you're not just presented with a king or a criminal, but you're presented with a king for a criminal. A king for a criminal. Barabbas is released. Jesus is scourged. When you hear that word scourge, you can go back and think of Passion of the Christ because actually it's right. Exactly that scene that would have made you turn your face away. Jesus is scourged and then delivered to be crucified. And there it is. The one who had taken life is replaced by the one who had come to give his life. The king is exchanged for a criminal. The criminal is substituted for a king. The innocent is treated like the guilty so that the guilty is treated like the innocent. And since a picture is worth a thousand words, Mark says to us, do you see? I could tell you this propositionally, but I want you to see this visually. Jesus for us. Jesus in our place. Jesus substituting himself. Mark wants to shout to you this morning. Do you see Jesus in the place of Barabbas? 
treated as Barabbas should have been treated. Well, if you see it, then that's the gospel. That's the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the Christian message is not ultimately that Jesus came to be our teacher or to be our example, to lead you into a better way or to a better path or to inspire you to live a better life, but that Jesus came to take your place, to substitute himself for you. If you put yourself in the story, when we were in our smaller groups this week, in our GCM, one person made this great point. He said, okay, put yourself in the story. Unless you have the audacity to imagine your Jesus in the story, then every other option of who you are in the story is you're a bad guy in the story. You have no options. You're either fear of man Pilate. You're either envious chief priests. You're either we didn't get what we want, so we don't want him crowd. Whoever you are in the story, Jesus had no options to die for except for the bad guys. There's no one good in the story. And if you're in the story, Mark is saying Jesus died for bad people, for the bad guys, for the undeserving. Mark is telling you visually what Paul said propositionally. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Mark would say to you this morning, look at the story and look at Barabbas because brother and sister, that's you. You are the rebel. You and I are the lawbreakers. We are the criminals whose crimes before God make us worthy of cosmic punishment. That middle cross should have been you. That's the point of Mark 15. And then the king comes. The innocent one who even Pilate himself said had done no evil. And he is flogged while we are set free. And he is delivered to be crucified while we are released. And Mark is saying to us, what happened to Barabbas physically has happened to every Christian across the ends of the earth spiritually. If Barabbas is the one man who could literally say, Jesus took my cross and died in my place, and yet strange as it may seem, every Christian can look at Barabbas and say, that's me. That's me. What happened to him physically happened to me spiritually. And, and Seven Mile Road, isn't the wonder of the gospel, isn't the amazing thing of the gospel, that not only can we identify with Barabbas, but because of what Jesus did, we become Barabbas's. What do I mean? Isn't it something that the true son of the Abba was treated like that criminal so that we criminals might actually become sons of Abba? So that the Christian story is, I was Barabbas, and by the grace of God, I am a true Barabbas now, a true son of Abba, a true son of this father because of what Jesus has done. Let me end by telling you this. Uh, my brother-in-law, Winston, his favorite preacher in the world is this old man named Chuck Swindoll. And, and through Winston, I, I heard this sermon that Chuck Swindoll once preached on this passage. He wrote about Barabbas, and Swindoll tried to imagine what would it have been like for Barabbas that day. If you put yourself in Barabbas' shoes for that morning, you imagine early on that Friday morning, he was sitting in his cell. 
Now, the jail cell in which prisoners were kept was a bit away from where Pilate would have conducted his cases. And so he couldn't have heard or made out all the things that were being spoken outside, but he could have certainly heard that mob of people outside his cell. And Swindoll imagines, imagine him sitting there in that jail cell with perhaps the two other bandits. I want you to know when it says that a thief was hung with Jesus on his right and his left, that word thief could be translated anywhere from thief to terrorist. It wasn't petty crimes. These were probably his partners in the rebellion, in the insurrection. And there Barabbas was. And you imagine him in his cell hearing a mob of people gather outside and all of a sudden hearing them scream out his name. Barabbas! Barabbas! Barabbas, this crowd would have cried. And then you would have imagined he couldn't have heard Pilate's one single voice muffled. And the next thing this man would have heard was crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And you'd imagine, Swindoll says, what Barabbas was thinking. And then for him to hear footsteps come to his cell and a Roman guard to open that door and say to him, Barabbas, get up. You are free to go. That's, Swindoll says, the gospel. That's the gospel. And that man would have walked out that cell. And the thing is, you have no idea what happened to that man. You don't know if he went on totally unchanged, went on to kill more Romans and eventually be captured or killed himself. You'd like to imagine that he lingered around Jerusalem that day, that he tried to catch a glimpse of the one who had taken his cross. You'd like to even imagine that he went on to live for the one who had died for him. But what Mark would have you consider this morning is, I don't know what happens to Barabbas, but what will happen to you? Will you walk out of here totally unchanged? Or will you turn and catch a glimpse and live for the one who died for you? That's the point. The point is, will you trust today in the one who is your substitute? Or would you have the audacity to walk out totally unfazed by this one, hanging in the middle cross where you should have been? The question Mark would ask you is, brother, sister, he took your place for your sins. Receive him, not just as a good example, not just as a good teacher, not just some inspiration, as your substitute for your sins, that you might be right with God and leave here coming in one kind of Barabbas and leaving another. That's the point. Wherever you are, you, you are sitting in a cell, maybe imprisoned by sin, Maybe imprisoned by addictions you can't beat, chained to a wall by things you can't seem to overcome. Maybe you are pinned down with guilt and shame, sitting and rotting in that cell. And maybe it's your name right now that's cried out, and what you deserve, crucify, being shouted next. Well, then footsteps come to your cell. Swing open the door. Tell you, stand up. You're free to go. Jesus has taken your place. That's the beginning of Good Friday. Let's pray together.